Father, indeed, it's been an awesome day here at our church. There's no doubting that. Uh, to sing and worship you, to see a dozen individuals uh, make commitments of faith through baptism, uh, to continue their faith in Jesus Christ, to show their faith. Lord, is indeed an amazing day for your church, and we're grateful for that. And, and Father, we're grateful for your word. We know, Lord, that without your word, we would have no sense of truth or direction on how to know Jesus, how to follow him, what to think in this wacky world of ours. And Lord, as we're going to see today, we'd have no information even on your grace. And so, God, I pray that as we open your word now, that you'd give us wisdom and insight. Help us, Lord, even some of us maybe to walk out of here this morning with some new truth tucked away in our heart and mind that might get us through the week as we follow you. And so, God, we thank you for our time right now. We pray you'd bless it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, I want to share with you a uh, statement that I need you to wrestle with today. It's a key and critical statement for anyone who wants to understand life change in this fallen world of ours. And here it is. Look up here on the screen. Here's the statement that I want us to wrestle with this morning. And that is that all good people, and I use good in the sense of quotes, all good people do not necessarily become Christians, and all bad people do not necessarily stay unbelievers. That's the statement, folks, I need you to wrestle with this morning, uh, that all good people do not necessarily become Christians, and all bad people do not necessarily stay unbelievers. You see, folks, I think this statement, which is both thoroughly biblical and hence true, blows away a myth. It's a myth that I hear all the time in the church today of how you and I tend to process the world around us and process people when it comes to how people become Christians. And the myth goes something like this. We see a relatively good person, a person that compared to some bad people in this world is fairly decent and pretty moral, at least by culture standards, and somewhat responsible. And when we meet a person like that, there are times when we think, boy, that person is so close to becoming a Christian. You ever found yourself saying that? A coworker, a friend, a family member, a neighbor, a service provider, somebody who's living a fairly responsible, somewhat balanced, relatively moral life, a good-hearted person, and he or she might even be open to discussing spiritual things because they're culturally astute, and we think, boy, if that person just had Jesus Christ at the center of his or her life, boy, would he or she be complete. They are so close to becoming a Christian. I hear that quite often from people in the pew. And then conversely, we see a relatively bad person. Again, a person, I put it in quotes, because they are bad by our culture standards. Even we could argue by God's standards. A person who's manipulative, dishonest, greedy, even hateful and full of pride. And we think, man, is that person ever far away from becoming a Christian. Like outside of a miracle, there is no way he or she is ever going to come over to God's side. You ever find yourself saying or thinking something like that? And what you need to know, folks, is that if you ever find yourself saying or thinking that, it's not necessarily so. It's actually a myth. It is not true that just because someone has achieved the status of becoming what one of my childhood friends calls a good egg in this culture, that he or she is necessarily any closer to knowing God. And it's also not true that just because somebody has made a lot of sinful choices up to this point in his or her life, that they are therefore a grand canyon away from entering the kingdom of God. It's just not true. It's a myth. 
All good people do not necessarily become Christians, and all bad people do not necessarily stay unbelievers. As we're going to see here in a few moments, God's grace is what's really going to call the shots here, and it's not dependent on how good or not good we've been as unsaved people, as people who are not following Jesus Christ. Now, there are actually two realities that God's Word, the Bible, makes very clear that might set us straight on all of this and help us understand this point this morning. So in our time remaining, I want to share with you two biblical realities, two things that the Bible says are true about you and me in this world around us as it relates to the kingdom of God, and this might help you understand this main point that I put out there before you. Here's reality number one. And that is that many seemingly bad people are actually closer to the kingdom of God than many seemingly good people. It's true. And we know that this is true because of all the kinds of people that Jesus himself rubbed shoulders with on this earth, people that those around them thought would never become followers of Jesus, never be the kind that would be about the kingdom of God, and yet in a, they were just a gnat's eyelash away from following Jesus. So think about some of the people you know, some of the players in the New Testament. Think about Matthew, the tax collector, a guy who in Jesus' culture was on par with one of the most seedy and dishonest kinds of businessmen today. This was kind of like the Tony Soprano or the Michael Corleone of Jesus' day. And he's sitting at a tax collecting booth being very bad. He's extorting taxes from people. And you got to believe, folks, that Peter, James, Andrew, and John, who were the four disciples up to that point, are thinking to themselves, what a sinner. What a waste of human flesh. And all of a sudden, Jesus calls to Matthew to come and follow him to become a disciple. And Matthew does. And he experiences profound life change from that point on as a result of that one decision. Or how about the woman at the well, a Samaritan woman, not the most prestigious ethnic line in all of Palestine at that time. And she had been married five times. I mean, this woman was giving Elizabeth Taylor a run for her money. And Jesus dialogues with this woman to the point that she is totally blown away, drawn to him, and forever changed. The woman at the well. Or how about the woman caught in adultery? Like one of the big ten, thou shalt not commit adultery. And they catch her in the act. They drag her in front of Jesus half-clothed. They ask him what he's going to do about it. And Jesus forgives her on the spot and then challenges anyone else to think otherwise and tells her to go and sin no more. And she's changed. Or how about one of the most powerful example, folks? Saul the Pharisee. One of the most learned, legalistic, angry religious leaders of his day. He had stood over and given approval to the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. And on his way to Damascus, where he's hunting down some more Christians to persecute. I mean, you can't get much more bad than that. And you can't be farther away from God than that. And on that road to Damascus, he meets the resurrected Jesus And he has an immediate and life-altering interchange with the Lord. And he goes on to become one of the most powerful followers of God ever seen in the entire Bible. Folks, I could go on and on. Bad people who in the eyes of the world are very far from the kingdom of God, but in the eyes of God, they're a gnat's eyelash away from the kingdom of God. They are just one confession away from entering into a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. Many seemingly bad people are actually closer to the kingdom of God in the Bible than many seemingly good people. 
And we know this is true because of the opposite of this, and that's the story of the rich young ruler. You guys remember him, don't you? I mean, he was the good egg of that culture. He's the one who had told Jesus, I've kept all the commandments. I'm a good religious kid. I've done all that God has asked of me. And yet because of his refusal to submit to Christ, his refusal to let go of his pride, the Bible says that he walked away from Jesus very sad, unwilling to let go of his life and give himself up to God. Interesting. A seemingly good person, at least by our culture's standards, who in his heart of hearts is very far from God, having allowed his supposed righteousness to blind him to the truth of God's claims on his life. Are you starting to get it, folks? All good people, at least by our standards of one's culture, do not necessarily become Christians. And all bad people do not necessarily stay unbelievers because many seemingly bad people are much closer to the kingdom of God than we would expect or even suspect. You know, I love how Jesus taught us this point directly in one of his parables. Many of us know many of Jesus' parables, but there's some parables that we don't teach very often from the Bible that might be kind of new to some of you. And so look at this parable that Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 21, verses 28 to 31. Uh, The context is that Jesus is having one of these regular altercations with the religious leaders of his day. They don't like Jesus. They're after him. They don't like the fact that, again, he's hung around with Matthew and women caught in adultery and the woman at the well and things like that. And so they're kind of after him, and they're challenging him as being one who came from God. And so listen to the story that Jesus tells them then, this parable in Matthew 21, verses 28 to 31. Look up here on the screen. This is great. Jesus says, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterwards, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And this son answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two then did the will of his father? They said the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you, referring again to the ministers and pastors of Jesus' day. Don't miss what's going on here, folks. There are some good people who say that they will go and work in the vineyard because they're good sons and they want to go and do what the Father says, and they end up not doing it. For our purposes this morning, they never become Christians. They never really do what God says, even though outwardly, by culture standards, they are labeled good. And then there's some bad people who say they will not go and work in the vineyard because they are rebellious, and yet in the end, they end up doing it. At the key moment, at a key moment in their life, they make a profound decision to work in the vineyard, again, for our purposes this morning, to move toward God by accepting Christ. In the midst of their messed up, sin-ridden lives, they accept Christ, and God accepts them and begins to change them. And I know how some of you think. You're thinking at this point, well, how can this be, Jamie? I mean, how can you have someone living a morally responsible life which obviously God would approve of because he's a God of righteousness and justice, but have that person not be very close to becoming a Christian. And then have somebody who's living a similar life to that of Ken Lay or Howard Stern or Mick Jagger and have that person be, as you say, a gnat's eyelash from the kingdom. I mean, how can this be? 
How can good people in our culture be far from the kingdom of God while bad people in our culture can be very close to the kingdom of God? And it's a great question. And it brings us to reality number two that the Bible shares with us about God's grace and maybe how a lot of this works. Because though it's a complex issue that we're talking about this morning, here's one thing I want you to chew on. It's reality number two, and that is that our human classifications of good and bad are based on our perceptions while God's go to the heart. Man, if there's something you guys need to hear today, it is this. That our human classifications, what we label good and bad, are based on our perceptions. But God, as you're going to see in just a second here, he knows the heart. You know, one of my all-time favorite passages in all of the Bible is found tucked away in a place in the Old Testament. And I'll bet that most of you did not have your quiet time in this place in the Old Testament this week. And even if you did, there's a really good chance that you would have missed this verse because it's simply a quick description of God's take on human beings in the midst of a very high-octane story in the Old Testament. Here's the context of the story. The first king in what historians call the United Monarchy, a guy by the name of Saul, is losing his grip on being Israel's king. Everybody knows he needs to be replaced. And so Samuel, the prophet, is directed by God to go to Bethlehem to the family of Jesse. And in his family of eight sons, God says he's already selected the next king of Israel. And so I'm going to be turning in just a second here to 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. If you want to turn there in your Bible, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. So Samuel goes to Bethlehem, finds Jesse and his boys, and they get to the first son, a guy by the name of Eliab, and Samuel takes one look at this guy and he says, this has got to be the next king. He's big, he's strong, he looks sharp. This is our next king. And in reading Samuel's mind, look at what God speaks to Samuel right at this point. Again, this is so key. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. It says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Is that not so cool? Man looks at the outward appearance, as I'm going to argue guys with you guys here in a moment, that's all we can really do because we can't ever know the composition of somebody's heart. So we look at the outward appearance, but God, who is obviously God, can see the heart. And it's right at this point, folks, in the story and going through six more brothers, all of whom God has not chosen for king, that they finally get to the youngest, a ruddy runt of a man. A guy by the name of David. Nobody thought he would ever be king. And God says, and I quote, this is he. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And there it is. That's why our main point this morning is both right and true. You see, here's how I think it works, folks. The only thing that you and I as finite human beings can really know about somebody, now think about this, is what we see in their actions or what they tell us is in their heart, right? Those are really the only two things at best, on our best days, we can know about somebody. What we see them do, because that's obvious, or even in the absence of that, what they tell us is in their heart, what they verbally share with us. 
And yet the problem is, is that there are times when one's actions are not really indicative of what's in the heart. We've all had experiences like that where we mess up in our actions, but we say, hey, that's not what's really going on in my heart. So actions are not always indicative of what's going on inside. And there are also times in which people tell us what is in their heart, and yet they're wrong. They're either unaware, or they're ignorant, or they're denying, or they're lying. I mean, there's lots of reasons that somebody will say, this is what's in my heart, and yet we've been deceived. They're wrong, whether they meant to or not. And so the point is we can never completely know for sure the heart of another person. And yet here's what you need to know. And that is that God is not fooled by either of these two things. He always knows the heart. He's God. He he sees right through every human being. He knows what is really going on. And so check this out. For God, there can be a Matthew the tax collector or a five times divorced woman or an adulterous woman, or even someone who hates Christianity and doesn't mind acting on it, and yet maybe they're this way because of a deep hurt, or a chronic insecurity, or a terrible upbringing, or a deep-seated fear. And maybe they feel inwardly guilty or ashamed or even close to broken, but they'd never want to let you know because they'd be fearful of being judged. And yet God sees all of this. He knows in reality how close they are to broken and finally being ready to, be, to, to, do, to do life on his terms. And the opposite is also true of the heart. You can have a rich young ruler who is as squeaky clean as Mother Teresa, and yet inwardly he is clinging to his pride, his money, his success, his self-sufficiency, inwardly shank, shaking his fist at God, and saying, I dare you to come too close, God. And God, who sees the heart, realizes that though the guy looks so clean on the outside, his heart is so far from him. Therefore, that's why we say a good person on the outside does not necessarily make somebody all that close to being a Christian. Do you see? God sees the heart. The point is you and I don't. We can only go on what we see outside or on what people tell us is going on on the inside, both of which can be deceiving. That's why all good people do not necessarily become Christians and all bad people do not necessarily stay unbelievers because we base good and bad on the outward perceptions or from what people tell us, both of which can be very flawed and very misleading. And folks, don't get me wrong. This is not to suggest that there aren't good people who come to Christ or that there aren't bad people who remain far away. Of course there are. And the Bible is filled with those examples as well. I mean, James and John, two of Jesus' closest followers, as far as we can tell, were pretty good eggs before they became followers of Jesus. Again, by culture standards. And so were Peter and Andrew. Timothy, we knew, grew up, no, we know, grew up a mama's boy and was a nice religious kid. And they all became amazing followers of Jesus, while Pharaoh remained bad all of his life. And so we definitely have examples of the converse as well. And the point is simply this this morning, if you get nothing else out of this, and that is that I need you to see that the kingdom of God is an incredibly mixed bag. Amen? The kingdom of God is a mixed bag. That's what makes the church, at least for me, such a cool thing. Because all of you, whether you like it or not, are a mixed bag. I mean, the reality is, is that there are some of you here today, if not many of you, in which from your former lives, people would look at you and say, I never thought they'd become a Christian. 
I never thought they'd be sitting in church right now listening to a sermon on grace. I mean, the reality is, is that it's all about God's grace, and that's what I need you to see. Whether somebody is really good from culture standards or really bad from culture standards, God comes along and says, my grace levels a playing field. All of you are sinners. Whether culture has been applauding you or not, whether you've been in jail or not, whether you've experienced success or not, whether you've been involved with drugs or not, whether you were homeschooled or went to a public school, God says it's a level playing field because all of you share one thing in common. None of you are going to reach heaven through your own good works. It doesn't matter how good you've been compared to other people in this world, no matter how good you seem on the outside, you are a fallen person inside, and fallen is fallen, and you're going to share one thing with all the other fallen people in this world, and that is that you're not going to reach God on your own. And so grace comes along and says, through Jesus, I have provided forgiveness for each and every one of you through my death on a cross, if you will but receive me into your life and become a follower of me. It's called grace. It's called salvation. And I just got to tell you, folks, I get more fired up about this idea of God, his grace, than anything else I've ever studied in the last 30 years of being a Christian. Anything. Somebody asked me recently what my vision was for Scottsdale Bible Church. I've been here three years now. They said, what's your vision for the church? I said, that's easy. I said, I want Scottsdale Bible Church to get and fall in love with grace on a much deeper level over the next decade of our church's life. And I'd also like to develop an evangelism culture stemming from that so that we might reach more and more lost people in the Phoenix metropolitan area. That's my vision, folks. I'm just going to let it out right now. That doesn't mean I don't want to preach the Word. Of course I do, because the Word is His truth. That doesn't mean that I don't want to have wonderful ministries in this church. Of course I do, because they all contribute to our bottom line, which is to be the church. But if you're asking me what my personal vision is for Scottsdale Bible Church, it clearly comes down to grace and evangelism. Now, tomorrow goes out a letter to all of our mailing list in the church, which is about 10 to 12,000 families. And in that letter will be my year-end synopsis of how we've done this year and yada, yada, yada. I hope you take time to read it because it took me like a half day to write it. But it's a letter to all of you just on my year-end letter. And included in that is going to be a brochure. And the brochure is called Embrace Grace 2011 Spiritual Campaign for Scottsdale Bible Church. And my encouragement to you is to read this brochure because starting in January of this next year, we are going to spend the bulk of next year focusing on God's grace. I truly believe it's going to be watershed for those of us who will be open to what the Lord might say to us about his grace. We're going to actually do a spiritual campaign in 2011. You're saying, what's a spiritual campaign? Well, it's a campaign where we ask all of you to involve yourself, not just by sitting in a pew on Sunday morning listening to a sermon, but reading a book. And we're going to have you read some books next year if you choose to do that. We're going to ask you to be involved in having a small group discussion with those around you if you're in an existing small group or maybe to join one. We're going to ask you to get involved in serving in some new ways and in some evangelism and outreach. In other words, there's four components to each aspect of the series that we're going to go through next year. And so here's what I'd love to do, and that's to give me another click here, guys, is that we're going to have four seasons of grace next year. In the winter of 2011, we're going to take five weeks and focus in January on God and grace. And it's going to be theologically robust teaching time on what God says about grace and himself and how he's approached us. 
But we're going to talk about how sin is the prelude to grace. If you don't understand your sin, you'll never get his grace. We're going to talk about the fact of how we've been justified in Christ and then sanctified in Christ and how grace from first to last is that which saves us and grows us in Christ. It's going to be a watershed series for us. And we're going to ask you to read a book during that time. More on that later. And then we're going to talk in February March about grace and the family. Man, nothing is more precious to me than how grace, when transferred vertically between us and God, horizontally to us and our families, has the power to help kids and grandkids understand God in profound ways. Dr. Tim Kimmel is going to help us with that series. We're going to talk about grace and the family. And then, because I know some of you are going to be very weary of the topical approach by then, we're going to study the book of Philippians for the next four months. I'm also doing that so you won't run me out of town. So we're going to study the book of Philippians in our spring-summer study, and I just love the book of Philippians. And then in the fall, we're going to pick up the grace theme again. We're going to talk about grace in church, how grace affects our relationships with each other in the church. And then, as a coup d'etat of the year, we're going to talk about grace in others, how grace can affect this community once we get it on a deeper level for us. Folks, the Reformers believed so strongly in grace that they called their doctrines the doctrines of grace. Dispensationalists believe so strongly in grace that they call the era that we're in right now the age of grace. Every theologian worth his or her weight in gold over the last 2,000 years has been enamored with God's grace. And I'd love all of us to do that as well. So as I say quite often, hang on to your pew. We're in for quite a ride as a church over the next year. Would you bow with me and pray? Father God, I thank you that John chapter 1 tells us that when Jesus Christ came to us, it was grace upon grace that he came to us full of truth and grace. And that, Lord, in him we have seen and experienced the grace of God. And Father, for some of us here this morning, it's just good theology. We believe everything that we've been talking about today because we know the Bible and we agree with the Bible. But experientially, Lord, we're lagging. And Lord, we know that grace was not given for us to be something that we just intellectually get, but given to be something that we would experience on a day-in and day-out basis with you and with our families and with each other and even passing it on to our community. And so, God, I pray that as we uh, focus on grace as a church for the next season of our church life, that, God, you would do nothing but bless us, that you would do nothing, God, but increase our understanding and our experience of this core trait of who you are. And, God, may we indeed grow deeper in our love for others and our faith and trust in you through focusing on your grace. God, thank you for the examples we've seen of grace today, for the 12 folks that got baptized We pray that your richest blessing would be upon them, that today would be a defining moment, a line in the sand that they drew that they'd never forget, their baptism day. Lord, we thank you for our time together, for our worship. We go now in a spirit and an attitude of worship, focusing on you and your word. We pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you guys next week.